it was always meant to be this way. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 8 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. This is where we talk about writing spies and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. When I retired from the U.S. government in 2009 to write for myself, I figured my life would revolve around writing. That's why I retired. I wrote in my old job, but it wasn't my stuff. I didn't get to put my name on it. So I thought I'd write at home, in coffee shops, at libraries, on the beach, basically anywhere I could take a laptop. I'd spend my hours researching, developing plots, eavesdropping on conversations in public places to borrow snippets of dialogue. And that has been pretty much the case over the past 13 years, almost 13 years. I miss coffee shop writing. I was looking forward to returning to that, but after our idiot governor decided to make the state maskless, that's not going to happen for a while yet. After my first post-retirement collection of short stories appeared in 2012, I discovered that as an indie author, or even a traditionally published author, I'm the one who has to convince people to buy my books. The kick being, you can't say, buy my books to people whom you want to buy your books. So what did that entail? Well, I had a Facebook profile. I'd had one since about oh, 2008. I thought all I'd have to do is post a picture there of my book's cover and people would just fall over themselves to go buy it. I'll pause here if you want to laugh. It seems you have to convince people that they can't live without your book, but you have to do so with subtlety, something I'm not particularly known for. And when you're your own publicist and marketer, the budget is limited as to how much money you can spend doing this for yourself. Years ago, when I first came to work for my agency's aviation safety magazine, the editor sent me to a graphics design course at American University. I still get alumna emails from them, even though it was a single semester course a long time ago now. But again, that's marketing. So I learned all the terminology 
about magazine layout and design and graphics, how to do a layout and how to design graphics for publication. But what became clear very early on was that I was fairly conventional. I liked balance and for things to be centered and to use traditional fonts and subdued colors. I wasn't edgy. And let's face it, visual artists are edgy. It's what makes them artists. It's what makes you want to see their work. So when I realized I not only had to market myself as a writer, but I also had to market my books, all the while assuring that my copywriting said, buy my books without actually using those words, I also realized my limitations in producing graphics. Today, when some of my early attempts pop up in Facebook memories, I really cringe. I bit the bullet then a few years back and carved out some funds from the household budget to hire a marketing consultant and a part-time graphics designer. Best money I've ever spent as an author. Well, except for flying lessons. I get good ideas from my marketing consultant and my graphics designer has the eye for translating my notes into brilliant representations. Both of these people have been a tremendous help to my authorship. However, once they hand everything over to me, there's the scheduling and writing the copy that goes with each post. And because I'm trying to keep costs down, I still create some graphics for my Facebook group. I stopped posting book-related stuff on my personal Facebook profile because I didn't want to mingle my authorship business with my political activism. I mean, people get triggered so easily these days, and I didn't want someone who disagreed with me politically to go to Amazon and leave a nasty review for one of my books simply because they didn't agree with me politically. And that happens. It's, it's happened to people. So I decided to split off from the personal profile and create a Facebook page. Now, it's tied to that profile page, but the name of the page is the name I use for writing, which is Phyllis A. Duncan. After that, it became obvious that Instagram was the up-and-coming social media, and I attended a panel at Virginia Festival of the Book a number of years ago that talked about using Pinterest to market your books. And I gave that a try, but it just didn't work. And, and I'll talk about more that more in a minute. Now, the first social media account I ever had was Twitter, because way back when, it was the cool, rad thing to do. So I eventually rebranded that for my authorship, 
because I just wasn't going to manage two different Twitter accounts. Now, some of my political beliefs come through on Twitter, but mostly via retweets and that sort of thing. I don't post a lot of political stuff that I generate. Most of what I generate on Twitter is, is about my books. I added an author website and a blog, and for a while, those were two separate sites on two separate providers. But I finally said, after about a year of that, I said, screw this. And I created, I combined the sites into one, which is my author website, of which my blog is a part or a page there. I found that Pinterest isn't the best of platforms for certain types of authors. Now, there are those who disagree and use Pinterest for marketing almost exclusively. But when I looked at my metrics, nobody was visiting. There were no click-throughs from Pinterest to Amazon to purchase my books. So I dropped that in priority. I have found that if you're a romance writer or a paranormal romance writer where you can use really pertinent graphics of, you know, people embracing or ghosts or whatever, Pinterest is a great platform for those kind of books, but not if you write thrillers that have a political aspect to them. Again, I added a newsletter, which started out as once a month, but evolved into twice a month. And the last thing I added for marketing was this podcast. So if you look at the whole thing, all the social media accounts and what I do with them, it's pretty well-rounded and it conforms to publishing industry expectations, not to mention what the readers want to see. However, it's all content-driven. And even though I have help in that area, most of the composing and copywriting falls to me. For example, in my later years, I'm not the best spontaneous speaker anymore. So I script or outline this podcast before I record it. Even then, I make plenty of mistakes. You won't hear them, but I've already made five, and I'm only like 12 minutes into recording the podcast. Most of those mistakes happen because I have these little helps to manage my stutter while I'm talking. And that's become harder to do during the pandemic because I think I don't engage with people as much. I don't have the practice. And even when I plan things out in excruciating detail for each day, sometimes each hour of the day. And that detail makes me feel as if I'm back working for Uncle Sam. Authorship, not just the writing, but all the stuff around it, 
uses a lot of my time. And I already carve out time to relax. I take a break a couple times a day. Time to read, because that's important if you're a writer. Family time, grandkids time. And some days that means zero words get written. And that frustrates the hell out of me, especially if it ends up being several days in a row. I'm a writer. I want to write. I also want people to buy my books. There, I said it. But everything associated with writing and with having an authorship business takes time. In the past three or four years, I've added editing for other writers to my bucket. And I enjoy that too. I was a magazine editor for 11 years and loved it. My reporters, maybe not so much, but I did. It's great to work with other writers to help them develop their stories. And it's awesome when a book you've edited wins prizes. I kind of feel like, oh, it won the prize because of me. Maybe that's a little too egotistical, but you know the feeling. You know, when your kid gets an award at school, you're like, that's because of me. But even the editing cuts into my writing time. However, the editing does pay more than the royalties from my writing, so... This isn't a rant or a whine, though it does kind of sound that way, I realize. I just thought I'd let you know that writing isn't all sitting at the computer looking thoughtful and accomplished, having a cup of coffee or perhaps even a glass of whiskey at hand. It's a lot more to it than only that. Writing is hard. But for me, it's a good kind of hard. It always has been. I've never felt more like myself than when I'm putting what's rattled around in my head on the page. But writing is also easy when you know that's what you want to do. It's just that all the stuff surrounding the business aspect of it is what makes it hard. Now, it wouldn't be easier if I'd been traditionally published. A long, long time ago in a life far, far away, I was traditionally published. But I was an unknown, so no publicist, no marketing plan, only a list of media outlets and the instructions to have at it. And this isn't endemic to indie authors only. If you're not a Stephen King or a Nora Roberts, even if you're traditionally published, this is your writing life and welcome to it. All right, today is February 24th. So you've got four more days to get an ebook copy of Love Death, my standalone novel, whose book birthday is this month, for 40% off its regular price. 
Love Death, inspired by the Wagner opera Tristan und Isolde's third act, Liebestod, is a pure Cold War novel taking place in the last two years before the Berlin Wall came down, which initiated the fall of the Soviet Union. It's a love story, but not what you're expecting. My short story reader magnet giveaway is still going strong. The story, Out of the Ordinary, is one that sort of functions as a prologue to book one of a series coming out in late June. The series is entitled Meeting the Enemy and deals with the events of 9-11 and its aftermath from a writer's and historian's and a U.S. citizen's point of view, all of whom happen to be me. I'll post the links to the Love Death Sale and the Free Reader Magnet, as well as my social media accounts I mentioned earlier in the description for this episode. Also, next month, March, doesn't contain a book birthday, which is strange. How did that happen? So I thought I'd push my writing brand a bit. You know, the tagline, real spies, real lives, a hint of romance. It's why this podcast is called the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. Throughout March, I'm going to delve into how that tagline came about. It's actually from a review of one of my earlier books. And what the concept of focusing on real spies with real lives means to me. I've worked really hard on making my brand. Oh, that's another thing your authorship business has to have, a brand. I've worked hard on making it consistent and recognizable. I've taken courses on how to create your brand, how to brand yourself, and so forth. You'll probably be tired of the brand by the end of March, but oh well, I have to give it a shot. Let's wind up readings from Love Death for this month with a couple of the final chapters from Love Death. Mine Alexei now have everything they need to complete the mission against the pesticides plant that's hiding the production of a deadly nerve agent. And we finally learn the fate of Alexei's lookalike cousin, Nikolai, or Kolya. And that's the real love story in this book. Love Death, Chapter 29, Eve of Destruction. 1989, three days after Checkpoint Charlie. Alexei Bukharin tapped on the door to Mai's room and entered before she could answer. He caught her in the act of strapping on her gun belt. She paused, finished buckling it, and fastened the thigh holster. Like him, she was decked out in tactical black, along with her ballistic and utility vests. 
if you're here for sex, you're too late. I'm not taking any of this off, she said. Not interested in a quickie. I wanted to chat about something. She straightened, frowning. Something not included in the team briefing. Yes. Mai picked up her gloves and balaclava. What is it? You're going to be placing plastic explosives and fusing same. Is that going to be a problem? Why would it be a problem? You know why. When you conducted the team briefing and dispensed the assignments, did I raise any questions or objections then? No. If I'd had any questions or objections, I would have raised them then. Answer my question, please. I believe I did. Are you making this visit to the other two? No. She looked away from him, nodding to herself. I see. I'm singled out because two years ago I made a bomb that essentially blew up in my face, and you think I'm not capable of putting plastic explosives at strategic structural points and jamming a fuse in it. Thanks for the faith in me, Alexei. It's not a lack of faith, my, isn't it? And why raise it now, last minute? It's concern for you and how it will affect you. Are you concerned for Devon and Kurt? In a different way. If you have any doubt about your ability to do this, tell me now and I will step in. I have no doubt about my ability to do this and neither should you. Are you using drugs? Why do you keep asking me that? I'll go into why later. Are you? No. Is that the truth? Yes. And you need to end this conversation right now before I say something you'll regret. I'll regret. Yes, because I won't regret a word of it. What have I done to have you doubt my ability? I don't know, my. Maybe shooting at a KGB officer from a guard tower at Checkpoint Charlie? Answer this. If I'd been crossing from the east to the west and you'd been on the guard tower, what would you have done? This isn't about me. Oh, because you didn't have your brains scrambled? So much for loving me. Your husband isn't asking the questions. Your My senior operative is. Tell me, will we ever reach the point in our professional relationship when you don't lord that over me? Look. I'm ready. I'll have no problem placing those explosive charges and fusing them. No problem at all. He studied her, unspeaking, but she didn't break eye contact. Fine, he said. We move out in ten minutes. At the door, she called his name and he turned back to her. Fuck you, she said. Again, not interested in the quickie. Ten minutes. From the rise above the annex, Alexei Bucharin examined the scene below him. The annex itself was awash in lights in the areas where the night shift worked to make socialist fertilizer and pesticides. 
but his focus was a dark area almost dead center of the sprawling facility. Scaffolding there surrounded storage tanks, massive amounts of piping, and perhaps four mid-sized buildings. Luckily, METS and the data from Brand's computer had confirmed the exact location of the Novichok facility. That scaffolding had gone up only a few weeks before, distinguishing that area from other construction projects at the facility. Report, he murmured. Kurt said, Guards on their usual patrols, no anomalies. Devon said, Construction crew at the target has dispersed on time. Mai said, All charges prepped and distributed. Lexei checked his watch. Move out on my mark. Three, two, one, mark. Balaclavas over their faces. My, Devon, and Kurt moved out, staying low to the ground. Alexei watched them through binoculars until they split up to head to their target areas and were lost among the tangle of equipment and structures. They had a half hour to plant ten charges each and then make their way back here. When all three were accounted for, he would transmit the signal to the detonators. If even one of them didn't return, too bad. He'd detonate anyway. Even if it were my, he asked himself. Yes, because the mission came first. That had been drilled into him for so long, he couldn't ignore it. For some reason, that brought Kolya to mind. Kolya's dedication to the mission hadn't faltered even after 30 years, even after Alexei had altered it to include Mai. Almost three weeks gone by with no word. Alexei took that as a positive. If Kolya had died the night he got Mai to safety, Alexei would have known by now. No word meant he was alive. Alexei pushed the thought of Kolya out of mind. The mission was here and now. Dwelling on the past was counterproductive, about as much as was his recent conversation with Mai. Nothing she'd said or done had triggered his concern until the plastic explosive had shown up and her nose had wrinkled at the smell of it. Did she even remember what she'd done in Ireland? In case she did, he'd had to question her about it. He'd known how she would react, but he'd had to ask. With his binoculars, he surveyed the annex again. No alarms, nothing unusual. Each of the three should be planting their last charge by now. He pressed a button on his watch for a 15-minute countdown and peered through the binoculars again. Deep breathing slowed his heart rate, and he forced himself not to watch the countdown. There, a movement, a figure in black, moving from cover to cover, too bulky to be my. The muscular bill suggested Devon, the former SAS sapper. Still, Alexei's hand rested on the butt of his gun until the Brit crouched beside him and doffed his balaclava. 
Ten charges, placed and fused. No problems. Ready to blow, Devon murmured. Two minutes passed. Another figure in black crept up the rise. My. For Devon's benefit, Alexei put his hand on his gun again and removed it only when Mai pulled off her balaclava. Her eyes straight ahead, she said, Ten charges, placed and fused. No problems. Ready to blow. He nodded to her, but she wasn't looking at him. The countdown on his watch ended. Did either of you see Kurt? Negative came Mai's reply, echoed by Devon. My Devon opinion, if Kurt didn't place all his charges, will we still get the maximum destructive effect? Yes, Mai said. Agreed. If you recall, I said the amount of plastic explosive was overkill, Devon added. Alexei narrowed his eyes at the plant. I'll give him one more minute. He handed the binoculars to Mai. Look for him. She raised the binoculars to her eyes and adjusted them. On watch, she said. From his backpack, Alexei took a transmitter about the size of a hardback book, checked its charge and frequency, and extended the telescoping antenna its full length. My, no joy. Fucking Germans, Devon muttered. My sentiments exactly, Alexei responded. Twenty seconds to detonation. His thumb hovered over the red button on the transmitter, the seconds ticking away. Stand by, Mai said. I may have him. Affirmative. It's cut. Is he far enough away from the target? He's clearing the tanks closest to us. Unless we set off a chain reaction, he's good. Fire in the hole, Alexei said, smiling at mine, giving her a wink. I've always wanted to say that. She ignored him again. He pressed the red button. Silence for two seconds, and a series of fireballs bloomed, followed by rumbling like thunder. Yes, Devon exclaimed. After a few seconds more, he added, That's thirty. We're done. A fireball bigger than any of the others appeared, an ear-splitting explosion a few seconds later. Following that was another and another. The three of them watched the destruction propagate throughout the annex, spreading from what would have been the Novichok unit. In less than a minute, the entire manufacturing complex was engulfed in flames. Oh, shit, said Devon. Definitely overkill, said Mai. She looked askance at Alexei. Unless that was the plan. Alexei gave her a Russian shrug. It is what it is. Kurt staggered the final few yards to the ridge's apex. <sighs> Ten charges placed and fused. Noah... No problems, he panted. What is the phrase? Quick on the trigger, won't you? No, I gave you an extra minute, 
what delayed your egress. After I placed the charges, two guards decided to take the piss, then smoke the cigarette. I had to wait for them to move on. He looked down at the conflagration, light from the flames making it almost like daylight. Well, what a mess, yeah? Mai murmured, The eastern world, it is exploding. Violence flaring, bullets loading. What is that? Kurt said. A song from the sixties, Eve of Destruction. Alexei replied. With that, Mai finally looked at him. Yes, I end up listening to your music, because you play it so loud at home. I'm worried about two things. The others looked at him. That we'll be spotted here, and that noxious fumes will spread this way. Let's return to the safe house for breakfast and a debrief. Are you making the breakfast? Kurt asked. I thought it would be a joint effort. Let's move. Chapter 30 Liebestod Arlington Condominiums, Arlington, Virginia Two days later when Alexei had moved in with Mai, one of the condo's five bedrooms had become his, not to sleep in. Whenever she was pissed enough at him she didn't want him in their bed, she banished him to the den. His room held his baby grand piano and his stereo equipment, which he'd wired to broadcast throughout the condo. In this room he stored some of his spy gear and weapons, careful to keep the room locked whenever his eight-year-old granddaughter visited. This was also his retreat of sorts, to listen to music or play his piano, depending on which emotions he needed to suppress. After checking the kitchen he'd headed there and sorted through his duffels, he separated the clean clothing from that needing to be laundered or sent out for dry cleaning. At the bottom of the larger duffel was a plastic bag from one of the hotel rooms he'd used in the past several weeks, the one the hotel provided if a guest had any clothing to be cleaned. He took the bag out and removed its contents, a peacoat, a white shirt, a pair of wool pants, and a mashed felt fedora, what he'd saved from the clothing Kolya had given him. The smell of cigarettes and a cheap Soviet cologne called Sasha brought back the moment he'd put the peacoat on. Alexei molded the fedora back into its normal shape. It smelled of sweat. In an old footlocker in his room, Alexei kept an assortment of items significant to him. Files on the Nazis he used to hunt. Other things that for anyone else would be sentimental but that wasn't a word used to describe him. A lock of his first wife's hair. A few photographs of his son, one sent secretly to him before Peter came to live in America. An earring belonging to Mai, one she still lamented losing. He squatted by the footlocker and unlocked it. He put the folded shirt and pants inside, followed by the coat his fingers brushing imaginary lint from it. 
His hand lingered there. The material was cool to the touch. No hint of body warmth remaining. That was as it should be. Besides, Alexei was the last person to wear this. Alexei held the fedora in both hands, made sure he'd restored its shape properly, fingers straightening the ornamental ribbon. A moment from thirty years before played in his head with unexpected clarity. A few days after their recruitment, Kolya had left a store in Kiv where he and Alexei had gone shopping for a new suit for Kolya. A cheap felt fedora sat on Kolya's head, and his smile was as bright as the late summer day. What on earth is thing on your head? Alexei had asked. Kolya leaned close and whispered, If we're going to be spies, why not look the part? Alexei picked some stray particle from the thirty-year-old fedora, once more molded its brim, and dented its top crease again. He put it atop the coat, looked at it until his thighs complained about squatting so long. He closed and relocked the footlocker. He straightened and took from his pocket a communique Nelson had handed him when he and Mai had stopped at headquarters. He'd only glanced at it there and shoved it out of sight. He read the message slowly, word by word, and read it again. Alexei folded the communique and repocketed it. He'd burn it later. No need for Mai to see it. Emotions rose in him as images from summers in Ukraine began to trek through his memory. He saw no point in wallowing, but Kolya, never musically inclined, had always loved listening to Alexei play the piano. What do you play, Alexei thought, for the man who gave you your and my's lives? He searched among the sheet music in the piano bench, seeking a particular piece. Once he found it, he sat down and arranged the pages on the music stand. He flexed his fingers to loosen them. It had been weeks since he'd played. His fingertips rested on the keys, exerting no pressure. Eyes on the sheet music, he inhaled a deep breath and began to play. Outside Alexei's room, Mai leaned against the wall beside the closed door, listening to what he played. She slid down the wall to sit on the floor, hugging her bent knees, face pressed against her thighs, as the music spoke to her. Soft and slow at first, the music built to loud, rapid heights beneath his expert hands, the notes sounding as if he pounded the keys. She could see those hands. She'd watched him play many times. His head would be bent over the keyboard, his hair falling into his face, his torso moving with the music, his eyes closed at the parts he knew by heart. The music reached its climax and grew soft again, his playing so gentle she strained to hear the notes. She wanted to imagine Alexei wept, as she did, tears silently streaking her cheeks. But that she couldn't see. 
Alexei rarely showed emotion. He let music explain his feelings, and she knew why he'd picked this piece to play. And she knew Nikolai Bukharin's fate. She'd heard the aria Alexei played before, Mild und Lise. She remembered some of the words. Don't you see it? Brighter and brighter how he shines, illuminated by stars, rises high. Wagner's final movement of Tristan und Isolde, Thebestad, Love Death, Love Death. That's enough for today. Check out the episode description for the links to the Reduce Price Love Death ebook and the free reader magnet, as well as the social media accounts that I use for the time-consuming marketing. Take care as we move into March already in 2022. I may have two in-person book events in April, so stay tuned for details about them. As you go about your day-to-day routines, remember, spies are everywhere. So wherever you go, keep an eye out for them. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Join us next week for a brand new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. And to wrap up, let me say, I stand with Ukraine.